You are listening to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia, a monthly podcast offering you an academic perspective on media. I'm Christine Becker. I teach in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm Michael Kackman in the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas. And we're coming to you a few days later than our usual target release date, which is always the last day of every month. But uh, April is no ordinary month. It's the uh, cruelest month. It is the cruelest month. There's a counterpart, I suppose. You know, December is the the other version of it. November is the the fall version of it. But it, at least in terms of the spring uh, in the academic world, this is a month of chaos and frenzy. So um, I'm happy we even have something here. So. I am too. I am too. Uh, and I'm actually really, really grateful to our listeners for giving us an extension. I'm sure they understand. Um, and what we have is so good, they'll all agree the extra weight was worth it. I'm, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, what we do have, we have our uh, Cinema Journal Presents interview as usual with uh, David Scott Diffriant about his article on Myra Breckenridge. I think you'll find it enjoyable. Uh, then I put together a segment on the Society for Cinema and Media Studies undergraduate conference that took place here at Notre Dame earlier this month. And then after that, we're going to bring you Vox Scolari. Exactly. We'll explain what that is when we get to it. We'll leave you in suspense as to what that could possibly be. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to uh, follow up on, I teased in at the end of our last episode that we had an interview with uh, SCMS web manager Aviva Dove Viban, but uh, we ended up delaying that for a future episode. Uh, we wanted to fit in the very timely SCMS undergrad uh, conference segment in this one, but uh, never fear, you will hear that in a future episode. So we'll check back in with Aviva next month. Yep, that sounds good. So in keeping with our tradition of Acamedia Bites, Chris, do you have one for this month? I do, and it's actually thematically tied to the chaos, frenzy, and misery we've all been going through the past few weeks. At this time of year, we media studies professors are able to perform only the most basic of tasks. There's breathing, there's eating, if you're lucky, there's sleeping, then there's grading, and also grading. If you have a light semester load, you may have the capacity for lesson planning in these final weeks, and maybe an episode of Mad Men, but everything else is optional, including communicating with family. This is when a good department administrative assistant is invaluable. Did you accidentally make the required history of film course available only to non-majors at registration time? I did that. The administrative assistant is there to fix it immediately. Did you forget to order a catering service for the honor student's reception in two days? The administrative assistant is there to make the call. Did you lock your keys in your office because you are rushing off to class, grabbing your lesson plan for the printer only 60 seconds before class starts? The administrative assistant is there with a master key and an understanding smile to ensure that you're able to drive home at the end of the day to get more grading done. So for these and many other dedicated efforts, I thank you, dedicated department administrative assistant. I could not do my job without you. Two of those three things happened in the past week, so it's, it's been like that. I'm ashamed to admit how many of those seem very familiar to me, too. <laughs> so those of you out there who are our fellow faculty, please say a big thanks to those who are supporting you in your work. We'd be lost without them. Indeed. So thanks, Bert. Thanks, Michelle. And thank you, Joanne and Joffrey. Oh, and our producer, Bill Kirkpatrick, would like to thank his administrative assistant, Sally, who he claims is better than all other administrative assistants combined and is literally the most competent person on the planet. All right, now on to our episode segments, and Michael is first up with our Cinema Journal Presents interview. We wanted to preface this with a note about the audio quality, which we realize is not up to our usual high standards, but we were battling our time crunch, of course, plus a late April snowstorm in the Rocky Mountains that helped to make for a very iffy Skype connection. There's just no limit to the ways in which April was trying to mess with this episode, really. But we're certain you'll find the resulting uh, interview a great listen nonetheless, and we don't expect snowstorms to be a problem for us in the coming months. We hope. We are talking to David Scott Diffriant, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. He's the author of a book on MASH, as well as editor of a book on the Gilmore Girls, and has written widely on other film and television topics. He's the author of a recent article in Cinema Journal, Hard to Handle, Camp Criticism, Trash Film Reception, and the Transgressive Pleasures of Myra Breckenridge. David Scott Diffriant, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you for having me. Your article begins... At the end of the 1960s, 20th Century Fox produced two audacious, stylistically unrestrained films that marked a dramatic shift in cinematic depictions of sexual themes. At once ballsy and breast-obsessed, these X-rated exercises in brilliantly bad taste, Myra Breckenridge and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, 
did not merely drive the final nails into the coffin of old Hollywood. They poured dirt atop that studio-era casket and danced a malicious jitterbug on its grave. How, how was this film made? Um, under much duress, I think, from looking at the production files. Uh, it is extraordinary that this film was ever produced by a major Hollywood studio. Um, it's, it's the kind of production that I don't imagine could ever be achieved today. So it is very much of its era, very much of the late 60s, early 70s period. Right around that time when there were a lot of changes taking place in, this, in the system in Hollywood, when a lot of um, efforts were made to try to tap into a youth market, and screenwriters and directors, producers alike, were just trying anything and everything, it seemed, to generate interest at this moment of, I guess, consternation and anxiety within the industry, not knowing what was going to happen next. Um, so it, it is an extraordinary film in many respects, uh, in terms of its content, its themes, uh, its, um, its kind of textual tomfoolery, it's all over the map, it's a kind of uh, fragmented, very, I would say, even postmodern film, pre-postmodern film. Uh, it's the kind of film you just don't see getting made these days. Really unusual. Yeah, it seems like... Um... Well, it's just a, a remarkable mix of styles. It reminds me a lot of some of the other sort of um, kind of loose, slapsticky, campy comedies. Right. You know, the Casino Royale spoof, things like that. Or Modesty Blaze, perhaps. Yeah. Kind of, of that period. Um, some of the kitschy, espionage-themed uh, films of that period. Now, it doesn't deal with espionage in the least, but it has some of that same type of campiness that... The, the kitschy or campy uh, aesthetic qualities that we associate with some of those other films of the, of the mid to late 1960s. And, and somehow they thought, they thought that if they wanted to really make bank on this kind of oddball little film, it was time to bring back Mae West. Absolutely. After about a 25-year uh, hiatus or a very long temporary break from working in Hollywood, she was kind of exhumed in the flesh, as one critic said, <laughs> brought back from the grave, so to speak. But she was there uh, for all to see in all her glory in this 1970 uh, film. And I suppose at this point they didn't actually even expect her to behave. Uh, I don't know if they were expecting her to behave. You know, I, I, in doing this project, I did look at, at a lot of the inner office memos, some of the correspondence that was going on behind the scenes, which I have to say is probably even more fascinating than the film itself. Uh, and there seemed to be, early on, uh, a kind of understanding that this was a production that could really potentially go off the rails, thanks mm -hmm. in part to her participation in it. Uh, she was very demanding at the time. She asked for a lot of things that maybe other actors of note would not have asked, perhaps. Um, and she was known, according to these inter-office memos, to show up quite late to the set after several hours of getting prepared. Uh, with makeup and dress. So um, one of the reasons why I think from the production stage forward, this film was kind of doomed is that there were a lot of battling personalities behind the scenes, and she was certainly one of those. Um, uh, it's, I think it's common knowledge among film historians who know this film well that she and, they, uh, uh, she and Raquel Welch were not on very good speaking terms. In fact, they only appear in one scene together in, in the entire film. So... She was, she was um, very difficult, I think, to work with for some of the younger actors, but she was also, I think, one of the reasons why so many people are, to today at least, um, fascinated in this film. You know, it's, it is a, a weird amalgam of new and old. It's both new Hollywood and old Hollywood combined in a single text, thanks in part to the presence of her and John Huston and a lot of the great throwbacks to the classic studio era. Mm -hmm. I found myself recalling the scandals surrounding her performances on radio in the 1930s, Matthew Murray's work on um, her, her appearance on the Chase and Sanborn Hour, where she, you know, she was thrown off radio because of her seduction of, of Charlie McCarthy. Absolutely. I mean, she was shattering taboos in the 1930s, at least during the pre-production code era, and even into the production code era, um, and she was kind of asked to do very similar things, albeit without so many of the restrictions in this, in this 1970 film. So she's very much tapping into her earlier iconicity and her, the way that she um, managed to really generate interest among a diverse group of audiences, uh, especially gay male audiences. 
um, who, if you if you believe the rhetoric surrounding this film, quote unquote, turned out in droves to see uh, the premiere of this film, to see her walk the red carpet, um, uh, disregarding uh, Raquel Welch and other actors. Who is not not a camp icon herself? She is she certainly is? I think she was then, and she's perhaps even more so just in the in the, in the intervening years. Her camp status has kind of grown, much like Mae West uh, did. Right. Let's listen to just a little bit of this. Okay. Well, the end of another busy day. I can't wait till I get back to bed. If that don't work, I'll try and sleep. Mm, hi, cowboy. How tall are you without your horse? Well, ma'am, I'm six feet seven inches. Well, <clears throat> never mind about the six feet. Let's talk about the seven inches. <laughs> most fascinating parts of this research um, was discovering that when this film was actually shown at, te- at a test screening in San Francisco at the Warfield Theater, it was, it was um, the, 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 I think it was 272 audiences who were tested that day to gauge their reaction to the film. And I, uh, an overwhelming majority of those 272 audience members either said it was an excellent film or a good film. Um, so that runs in contrast, obviously, with the kind of mainstream critical reception right, right. of the Vincent Camby's and the John Simons of the world. When they greeted this film, it was to deride it. It was to use very kind of, kind of ironically uh, campy rhetorical maneuvers to express their disdain of the film. But uh, there were audiences, gay audiences in particular, who responded immediately to it and saw its value. And you captured really nicely, I, I thought, in your reading of... Um, Rex Reed's performance in the film, which seems just absurd. I mean, it's just such a crazy moment. It's folding in on itself so much. I know, he's such an interesting critic still today because he's, he's always engaged in a type of performance. Like, in his own reviews, he's performing Rex Reed-ness. I, uh, he's an unusual critic today, still today, but at that time, he was going on seemingly every other talk show to basically uh, the bad mouth Michael Sarn, the director, or other individuals working on this production, uh, and kind of not subjecting uh, his own performance to the same type of critique. Can you explain his performance? So Rex Reed, uh, a film critic, a New York film critic at the time, was uh, cast in the role of Myron, Myron Breckenridge. Uh, uh, This is the character, a movie buff, who uh, actually undergoes... um, uh, a sex operation to become Myra Breckenridge, the title character, who will, of course, be played by Raquel Welch. Uh, he doesn't completely disappear from the film uh, post-operation. He'll continue to appear in these kinds of almost dreamlike sequences in which both Raquel Welch and Rex Reed are together in the, in the frame. Uh, but he is a, a movie buff, and, and, and the way that he kind of expresses his love of early cinema, or rather uh, studio-era cinema, suggests that this film is in some ways about film criticism, um, something that I don't think very many uh, critics then or even today have really acknowledged. Mm-hmm. This is a film that really does examine what the life of a film critic is like. And I, I'm maybe pushing the metaphor a little too heavily here, but in the early portion of the film, we see his character in stirrups in this operating theater about to have the, the deed done to him. And he's composing this letter, this missive, to a lover, it turns out. And the way he describes the, the experience uh, and the, the operation is almost akin to what a film critic might go through when mm-hmm. he or she experiences a, quote-unquote, bad film. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I couldn't help but think... And, of course, uh, there are... Um, in the midst of that operation, in that um, operating theater, are film directors, or at least individuals who are sitting in directors' chairs. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't help but think that this is almost a kind of retroactive fantasy on the part of Michael Sarn to to basically eviscerate the critics who eviscerated the film. A kind of preemptive strike, rather, on the, on the critical uh, discourse that would soon follow. I don't think that's reading too much into it. It seems like it's right there in the text. Well, I think so, but some, you, know, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, of course, Rex Reed, true to form, follows through with exactly the kind of scathing response that... Absolutely. And I, I tried to quote as many uh, passages from contemporaneous reviews as I could. My favorite, and I'm not able to quote it uh, here, but Joseph Morgenstern's review of the film, or rather his review of Mae West's performance, it's like a masterpiece of camp criticism. 
It's a very pithy, very short, little, almost blurb-like review. But what he does uh, rhetorically in that review is very much similar to what the film itself is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't help but think that there's a strange correspondence between the film's um, kind of textual density and the way that it is all over the map. It upset a lot of the uh, reviewers for the way that it combined old and new, I think. But the reviewers themselves were opting for excessive language in their own reviews, and they were demonstrating rhetorically the thing that they so disliked mm-hmm. in the film itself. And so the, 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 um, the portion of my essay that you quoted, I was essentially trying to tap into that hyperbole. Mm-hmm. So I hope that that came through a little mm-hmm. bit, that I'm performing my own uh, critical excess in this, in this piece, a little bit at least. True camp. Can you say a little bit about the kind of sources you had? Uh, how did you get access to uh, materials surrounding the production and that kind of thing? Oh, thanks. Um, I, I undertook this research in several stages. Um, I graduated from UCLA. I got my PhD there uh, in 2005. So I've had some experience working with archivists and special collections librarians there. So I knew that they had a, a, a good collection of Fox film files. Uh, USC does as well. But I came to discover that they had an entire uh, mega folder of Myra Breckenridge production uh, material. Oh, nice. And within that folder, there were subfolders of fantastic uh, information um, from the very early stages of this production. Now, I also did additional research at the Billy Rose Collection in New York and MoMA and other places, but it was really that UCLA Special Collections archive that was like a treasure trove of glittering details that seemingly no one else had, had apparently kind of tapped into fully, at least. Uh, and I was discovering all this material that I unfortunately wasn't able to incorporate into the essay itself. Mm-hmm. But I think if anyone wants to write about uh, kind of filmic failure from the productions, from a production angle as opposed to a reception angle, they can go to that mega file and see that uh, from the very early stages, people knew that this was going to be a disaster. And it was fascinating to read Rex Reed's, um, his inner office memos. He was trying to rewrite the script all throughout the production. Mm-hmm. And he came up with these really wacky scenarios mm-hmm. where his character would essentially uh, settle down and, and have this kind of normal heterosexual life with one of the uh, kind of minor female characters. And so he was trying to heterosexual, kind of heteronormativize <laughs> the narrative in the midst of its own kind of it, its, uh, predisposition for queerness. So he's trying to unqueer this potentially queer text <laughs> Good luck within the production. That. So it's, it's a really interesting... But see, I would never have mm-hmm. known about that had I not gone, gone to the archive itself and, and kind of dug around. Um, You've found some really, really amazing things. One of the things that seems really interesting about your work is that it disrupts our sense of this transition from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. You know, in the... Um, the, the rise of the young Turks in the 60s and 70s who then go on to, you know, become the, the titans of the industry. And this is, in some sense, a footnote, but it also troubles the entire narrative of revolution or, or transformation. Right. It's not insignificant that it is a major studio film. It's a mm-hmm. Fox film. Um, and I tried to think about the context of its production, being a Fox film, the fact that there were other Fox productions at that time that were equally unruly or unorthodox. Mm-hmm. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, right? Yeah, I think that film in particular stands out. Uh, both of those, of course, um, received the X rating, the MPAA's X rating, um, which I suppose was not necessarily unusual for studio production at the time. I mean, it's a little unusual, but there were other examples of that. I, mm-hmm. I think these were both the first X-rated box films to be released, though. Um, they, they are at that kind of pivot point, that, that shift, that, that period of transformation where the Young Turks are about to take hold of the industry and revitalize it, but they haven't quite uh, kind of come into the fray completely. They're all doing their, uh, either their, kind of, uh, their work as film students or they're apprenticing under Roger Corman or they're mm-hmm. just now starting to make that transition, the Peter Bogdanoviches and Martin Scorsese's and those right. individuals. It is very much a studio production, though. And uh, so uh, Richard Zanuck, the, I guess he was doing the vice president of uh, production there, kind of taking the reins over from his father, um, he was a 
he was obviously he was bringing in some new blood, some fresh perspectives. He was relatively speaking a fairly young uh, overseer of the studio, and he mm-hmm. had his, he thought he had his finger on the pulse of the nation. He thought that this is what the youth market wanted. It turned out he wasn't really uh, he wasn't accurate in that assessment. Um, and, and to me, this was kind of clearly borne out um, in a weird, almost anecdotal way. Um, when I saw an episode of the Dick Cavett Show, I was watching this episode that was released just after the film's uh, theatrical release, and Raquel Welch um, was invited as a guest. But also, uh, alongside Raquel Welch, there was Janis Joplin, you know, the, the rocker Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. And you would expect Janis Joplin, as someone who kind of appeals to a countercultural sensibility at that time, to perhaps be sensitive to what this film might be at least attempting to do. And she, in her, um, in her segment on Dick Cavett's show, she seemed to express a fairly mainstream attitude. That, you know, she asked, is this really what the kids want? You know, mm-hmm. and, and so she didn't quite get it, it seems. Right. And I imagine many other potential young audience members would not have gotten it at the time of its release. Mm-hmm. It would have seemed a little out of steps with their own culture. It seems like old-fashioned in a sense, mm-hmm. even if it's very progressive, as I say, from a cultural point of view. Um, it does harken back to a much earlier mode of production. Which, of course, is what makes it so sublime, right? I mean, at least. I, I, I agree, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that uh, you've helped breathe new life into the, the viewing audience for this film. I hope so. And I hope that more of these types of uh, trash films or paracinematic texts get kind of brought into academia as well. I think they're great teaching tools. Um, I know a lot of other critics and scholars have talked about the use value of trash cinema and cult films mm-hmm. in the classroom. I certainly try to incorporate that into my classrooms as much as possible. I think students can learn just as much from a, a Dwayne Esper film or something like Meyer Breckenridge as they can from a, um, a Terrence Malick film. So. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Here I am, I'm a girl on the scene I can give you what you want, but you gotta come home with me I've got some real good loving and I've got some in stock When I get through throwing it on you, you gotta come back for more Girls and things will come by the dozen, that ain't nothing but looks so loving Good looking thing, let me light your candle, cause baby I'm sure how to handle this I am Next up is a segment I put together at the SCMS Undergrad Conference, which was a great experience for all involved, as you'll hear now. On April 12th and 13th in the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame, my department hosted the inaugural Society for Cinema and Media Studies Undergraduate Conference, which featured 30 participants representing 23 colleges from across North America. I co-organized the conference with my film, television, and theater, or FTT, department colleague Pam Wojcik. And while this was the first SCMSU conference, it was not the first undergraduate film and TV conference FTT is hosted at Notre Dame. In fact, this was actually the sixth conference we've done. But before it got the SCMS imprimatur, it was just called the Midwest Undergraduate Film Conference, and the first one was held in 2007. Pam was the one who had the good idea to do this back then, so I asked her what prompted her to start this event. The conference was student-driven. I had a student who went to a conference I was going to on the 50s. He was an undergraduate, and it wasn't an undergraduate conference. It was a regular one, and I was very nervous about him, and I thought, oh, it'll be terrible, and he was great, and he did his paper, and he participated, and he had a great time, and at the time, he was in the honors seminar that we were teaching, and when we got back from the conference, we talked to the students in the class, and I said, oh, so-and-so did a great job. It was really exciting. They all got enthusiastic and were asking him all these questions, and so I spontaneously said, gee, would you kids like to do something like that? And then a group of us walked upstairs to the chair of FTT. It was very Judy Garland, and we said, please, mister, we'd like to put on a show. Can we have some money? And we started it. 
The first conference was a big success, so we set out to host it every year, initially keeping the Midwest designation. But in subsequent years, we started getting proposals from New York, California, Texas. Uh, clearly, there was national interest. Tennessee was also incorporated into our big Midwest tent early on, as University of Tennessee professor and uh, subsequent SCMS president Chris Holmland sent students our way. And for the 2009 conference, she came herself to deliver a keynote address. Pam describes how that subsequently led to the SCMS stamp on the conference. So she'd always been a good friend of the conference, and when she became president of SCMS, she recognized a great opportunity to combine SCMS's desire to find more ways to engage undergraduate students with this, and then it enabled it to go fully national and get the stamp from SCMS. The 2013 incarnation featured an impressive assortment of topics. We had panels on intertextuality and transmedia, the musical, authorship, social norms, queer visuality, national perspectives, race, and contemporary television. And a wide range of media texts were analyzed. Uh, Hollywood cinema, indie cinema, avant-garde cinema, pornography, popular television, comics, music videos, anime. One student who attended, Spencer Kubation from uh, UC Santa Cruz, said he was especially impressed at the depth of thought evident in the papers. This has been a kind of an eye-opening experience for me. I've been on a lot of film festivals and film festival panels, which is a very different environment than a conference. And this experience of actually attending a film theory, film theory conference has really been interesting for myself. And um, it's also interesting to see where the most research is being done and what our generation is finding culturally relevant opposed to what is being said is culturally relevant. I think in an age of a lot of people saying you know, the, the Hollywood generation with blockbusters, it's very refreshing to see students taking upon big cultural issues like um, equality and queerness. Also evident in wide variants were the institutions represented, particularly in terms of the film programs students came from. We had a representative from Michael's RTF department at UT Austin, which has about 1,000 majors, and we had representatives from Grinnell College in Iowa, which has zero majors, uh, because there's only one person teaching media studies there. And yet, that one person helped to get three students into the conference, second only to Notre Dame's four representatives. Um, she attended the conference, actually, to help chair a panel. Her name is Teresa Geller. Uh, she was hired at Grinnell College as part of an initiative to bring a new faculty to teach in disciplines that had never been represented at the college before. So Grinnell hired an Arabic professor, a geologist, a geographer, but Geller was the only one of this cohort hired whose subject area didn't fit into any existing concentration. There was no pre-existing structure of any sort for media studies. So students interested in media studies have to find her classes listed within broad division categories like humanities. So one goal that Geller has had for her classes is to help students understand what the field of media studies is, what larger academic discipline they're participating in when they're taking, for instance, her film genres course. So in Geller's genres class last semester, she developed an assignment for the students to propose papers for the conference, and she explained to me the logic behind this. I did want to have my students know that there's a world of their film studies, and I think that's been the most beneficial thing because we are in a little bubble in the middle of Grinnell, Iowa, literally a town of 9,000 population, most farmers so to get and they don't know, have any context for what they're learning and so to know that they can come and have a conversation with people who are doing this major was really important to me so our first assignment was for everyone to write a conference abstract and it was up to them whether or not they wanted to submit it Following the conference, Geller told me that her students got exactly what she hoped they would from the experience. This has been great for them. They've just been ranting and raving about the experience because they get to talk to people about what they study in class. And they don't get to do that, really, at Grinnell. It just, it's, it's too isolated, and without having a program, it doesn't make sense because they have to bring it back to their own majors. I mean, you have to understand, the students I have here today represent a double major in sociology and gender women's studies, a double major in French and gender women's studies and an independent major in American studies. So none of them are film majors. So to be able to think that they can take this education they're learning and be able to interact with majors who've been taking several classes and they're already producing from a class and a half producing scholarship that it's the equivalent or peer on the same peer level as these people with going into graduate programs in film studies is exactly the message I wanted to, to get to them and they've heard it. One of Geller's students, Brian Buckley, who delivered a paper on 1990s TV crime procedurals and their larger racial implications, described to me the pleasure he took in the weekend's events. Especially coming from a school where there's not a, not really a film department um, or film program, I can't really engage with necessarily that many people about a topic that I'm really passionate about. Um, so being able to just 
you know, sit in a room with people and talk about really dense film theory that, you know, my friends back at school would just sort of think I'm kind of crazy for talking about uh, is really, it's that's been incredible, actually. It's been, in that regard, a really incredible experience being here. I also loved hearing from Grinnell Colleges' Claire Fleckenstein, who delivered a paper on Lady Gaga about how she tries to teach her friends back at school about media studies and how it can help them better understand the images around them. Yeah, and I also want to be able to just, like, share this knowledge with my friends so I can kind of, like, be that ambassador of, like, the feminist knowledge or whatever um, and, you know, like, do some film analysis with them and help them understand, like, why why does Lady Gaga matter? My friends are like, why, why do you care about Lady Gaga? And I'm like, well, let me tell you. Let's watch this and then I will explain. A student from another small program, Matt Rossoni, who attends the University of Western Ontario, also affirmed that a good lesson of the conference is that you don't have to be at a big-name film program to be doing top-level work. For me, the most rewarding part was, you know, especially coming from like a small, kind of a smaller school like in Canada, realizing that the work that I was producing and that like the people from my school and were producing and all around some of these, you know, really famous kind of schools, you know, like Columbia and like New York and everything, that we were all producing fairly strong work that was on like a... Uh, level playing field. In addition to Teresa Geller, I spoke to a few other professors who sent students to the conference, uh, none of whom had programs as small as Grinnell's, but who are in places where students don't get contact with graduate students in media studies and thus don't always have a sense of what the field is about. Kevin Heffernan, who teaches at SMU and recommended that his uh, student Amanda Presmick apply to the conference, says he considered it akin to providing a production student with an internship. Here at SMU, we are very committed to providing students with a range of internships and hands-on professional experience before the end of their undergraduate career. And so our film production people frequently intern on feature film shoots, local television productions, or at post houses. And on the study side, I was very excited to be able to offer one of our premier study students the opportunity for what was in effect a bit of professional experience as a film academic. Similarly, uh, Amanda Ann Klein at East Carolina University, who is one of only two media studies professors there who run a burgeoning film studies minor, saw in the conference a chance to offer a valuable experience to a promising student of hers named Maggie Steinhauer. I announced the conference uh, it, it, to my students and I explained what a conference was, uh, how proposals work, you know, the value of, of doing something like this. A lot of the students said, well, uh, how are we going to pay for this? And so I said, well, you know, let's worry about that later. Let's just, you know, write a proposal first and see what happens. And uh, Maggie, I think, was the only student who ended up applying. But that makes sense to me because she is, she really does enjoy doing this research. She's incredibly bright. She is a very hard worker, uh, which are two qualities I think you need to be a good scholar. But then I think you have to enjoy yourself too. You have to not just see it as I'm doing this so I can get an A. I'm doing this so that I can raise my GPA. Instead, you have to look at it as I'm doing this because I think this is valuable research. I want to engage with this field. I want to add my voice to it. And I think a conference environment is just, that's where that kind of student can really blossom. Maggie, who delivered a paper on Doctor Who and the mainstreaming of fandom, affirmed to me that she especially enjoyed seeing the range of papers delivered and thereby having her eyes open to what media studies can be about. It's really interesting to see people from different schools and how it's not just about film. We can do TV. There's a lot of gender studies going on, um, a lot of work in film and politics and how it all works together. Film studies is a lot broader here than you would get from, you know, just telling people I'm a film studies major. It's like, so you just watch movies all the time. It's, it's a lot. It encompasses a lot more than that. As Amanda and Klein explained to me, this is valuable knowledge for undergrads like Maggie, who might be thinking of graduate school and media studies and would benefit from close contact with like-minded students and with the professors who chaired panels, uh, including Notre Dame's uh, own Darlene Hampton, who teaches a course on fandom that's right in line with what Maggie's scholarly interests are. Maggie and I spoke about her experience with the conference, and she was saying that she felt that she was part of a think tank. She mentioned being really excited to meet Darlene Hampton and to see someone out there doing what she is researching at, you know, for a living, you know, someone who's doing fan studies. And she was also particularly excited that people were writing about Honey Boo Boo and the Real Housewives of, uh, I think Atlanta was one of the papers. And so she got to see, hey, you know, this is legitimate scholarship. This is something that people are writing about. What she's doing is legitimate scholarship. You know, it's not dorky to be excited about this. It's great 
great. There are other people like her who want to do this. A participant named Chris Mullen from Muhlenberg College similarly expressed that even among his film friends at school, he can't always find the level of discourse he enjoyed at the conference. I enjoyed being able to discuss film in a you know critical, thoughtful way, which I don't get the chance to do that often at Muhlenberg because even in the film club, it's we focus a lot on popular films. That's a little disheartening and it can get a little lonely sometimes. And across the board, the students I talked to said that while they enjoyed listening to papers, they valued most being able to talk with other students about their work. So, for instance, I spoke with SMU's Amanda Presmick, who uh, delivered a fascinating paper on a pornographic remake of the Hollywood film Westworld, finding that the porn, called Sex World, offered a more progressive image of gender and sexuality than the original. And uh, she said she appreciated the conference setup, which, just like the regular SCMS conference, left time for discussion at the end of each panel. I love the way that the panels have been organized, you know, to have the kind of the time afterwards to discuss and kind of chew on things as they relate to each other and kind of finding those ties, some of them easy to find, some of them more difficult. It's, it's been cool. This echoed something her professor Kevin Heffernan said about the value of an undergraduate conference and even about the nature of SCMS itself as an organization, which is potentially reflected in SCMSU. One of the big things that we do as a discipline is reciprocally support and nurture each other's work. And this is an opportunity that many undergraduates don't find over the course of their undergraduate years. So I think that in addition to getting the word out about some of the great work that our students are doing across our field in many, many different departments, I think the opportunity to network and bond and get together a community of scholars is really, really one of the best and most important contributions that the undergraduate conference can serve. A possible ultimate payoff of this is to better prepare the future SCMS members of tomorrow for the life they could lead. Heffernan, who went to grad school like me at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, affirmed this. I didn't understand that there were other people like me until I arrived in Madison. So to be able to give undergraduate students that experience before they finish their undergrad degree uh, is really, really great, especially since a lot of the undergraduate students don't come from programs that have a large PhD program and which bring them into contact with professional film scholars in training. Echoing this point about what undergrads can learn from those already active in the field, Amanda Ann Klein had a great idea for something future SEMSU conferences could try to implement. One thing I had thought of is uh, a workshop with professors and graduate students who could field questions about, you know, first of all, what is graduate school like? How do you apply? You know, just kind of the nuts and bolts. How do you apply? What happens when you get to graduate school? I was a very dedicated student as an undergrad. Uh, when I got to graduate school, it was quite a wake-up call. And it was just so different from my undergraduate experiences. And it was a little, um, it was even a little unsettling, I would say. And so to kind of explain what that's like, how it works financially, is it worthwhile? Are they going to have a job at the end? And if they can't get an academic job, are there other uses for a media studies degree? I know my students have these questions. And so those are the students, obviously, that would be applying to graduate school. So for them to be able to, to have these conversations, I think would be really useful. And there will be future SEMSU conferences, as like the parent conference, the SEMSU version will be held annually and will rotate across the country every four years. Next year's stop is the University of Oklahoma, so keep an eye on your SEMS emails next fall for proposal info and be sure to tell your students of its value, maybe suggest they listen to this segment, in fact. Where the conference will uh, be held in the years following that is still in the works, but Teresa Geller, for one, is already thinking of the future. Well, I hope one day Grinnell will house the, one of the next ones when it comes back to the Midwest region. I think that might be maybe by the time, hopefully by the time, knock on wood, um, that we could come around, the SEMS undergraduate conference could come around to the Midwest. Grinnell will actually be something on the map. There may be a structure there. There may be more classes. That we could have a concentration at the very least or a way for students to, to get the sequence of courses and we could bring other scholars to Grinnell and maybe Grinnell could see that there are these other new majors and fields of study that are really, they're really popular with students and students want to learn this stuff. And I think that would be a great way to, to that I've educated my students. Now it's time for my students and this community to educate the college.
sleeve I took hold of his sleeve with my hand And as if it were planned He stayed on with me And it was grand just to stand With his hand holding mine To the end of the line That was a terrific piece, Chris. I found myself thinking about what it was like when I was just starting to wade into this field as an undergrad. And this would have been a terrific opportunity for me at the time. I think the same thing. The other component of that is I was amazed at how great these students were, how well composed they were. Their papers were delivered really well. They asked, you know, in the Q&A was very professional. It sounded just like an SEMS. And I was just thinking back, like when I was a junior, could I have done that? I don't think so. Oh, there's no so. way I could have. I, would, I was such a rookie. Yeah. What was the first conference you went to? Uh, SEMS would have been the first one. And it was my, uh, well, it was the Dallas conference. So whatever year that was, and I was only a couple of years into grad school, actually a carload of us went down, like mm-hmm. seven or eight of us all piled into a car and we drove straight there. Yeah. So we all piled in the car and drove down and uh, I got the, like the 3 a.m. shift driving through Oklahoma. It, it, like it felt like a Stephen King novel. Like I couldn't see, <laughs> there's nothing, absolutely nothing around me. It's 3 a.m. people in the back snoring. Um, but I couldn't have been more excited to, to go to the conference. It was a really great experience. Yeah. I went to, uh, then the Speech Communication Association and then NCA, National Communication Association Conference. And it was in, in Miami Beach. And I went, I was actually an undergrad and they had like this, you know, this kind of, kind of like SEMSU, but without the guidance and without the, without the um, development that, that has clearly gone into this one. Um, but I do, the thing I remember most is that there was nobody there to respond to my paper. And so I went and sat on the beach. <laughs> well, that sounds like an even better experience. It worked we, out. We weren't able to offer a beach here at, at Notre Dame for our students, so they missed out on that. But, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do. All right. So coming up next, I think we've got Vox Scolari. And can you explain that? Yeah. Well, this is a new feature for us, and we will give Bill Kirkpatrick full credit for coming up with that awesome name. And this is a segment where we ask the same question to multiple scholars and then put together their answers into a montage. And that's what uh, Bill did for us here. He produced this uh, segment. And it ties in with what we were just talking about, early stages of academic development. The voxing occurred at the March SEMS conference where Michael, Bill, and I trapped the scholari behind our microphones and asked them to cite a media text that inspired them earlier in their careers or even in their adolescence and made them want to look more deeply at media. So what we have here is a sampling of some of the most interesting answers. Now we're recording. Okay. Tell me who you are. I'm Mary Elizabeth Horalovich, also known as Mary Beth Horalovich. What film or television program made you want to enter this field? Oh my what was gosh. The first, thing? the first thing was a person, Charles Eckert, at Indiana University. I was a sixth grade teacher, language arts and social studies, in a difficult middle school situation Uh, and I just quit went back to Bloomington and took some courses and one course I took was Charles Eckert and he showed double features he showed G-Men and Madigan he showed Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and it was incredible and he was this great teacher and that's how it all happened I wanted a marriage like mom and dad's, but not yet. First, I wanted new experiences, new faces, new surroundings. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get off, gonna get, have to get off all alone. Gotta find out. Gonna find, need to find life on my own. I'm Ron Becker at Miami University, and the text that got me into media and cultural studies was women's tennis coverage on television. At the time, I was a master's student in Scandinavian languages and literature at the University of Wisconsin, and I had gone there as an undergrad, and I went to my old English professors and asked, hey, can I study something like that in English? And they said no but I assume you know John Fisk, and I did not know John Fisk. 
notes, but uh, I went and looked up his office hours and went to see him, and he said, yes, you could write about that, and you should take my class in the fall. So I did, and I wrote a semiotic analysis of the Everett-Navratilova rivalry, which is the first thing I ever wrote. And last two weeks ago, I actually used some of it, including the colored overheads that I made for the paper in my media, gender, and sexuality class. Chris looks a little bit tired. Martina seems more up, more hopping around all the time. <laughs> Martina thought she had the game, but netted that forehand. You know, I'm actually kind of ashamed to say that it might be Will and Grace, actually. Um, which I don't respect so much anymore, but when I was a wee little 18-year-old, Will & Grace was the show that I watched to help me kind of come out of the closet, as so many people talk about, and I realized the kind of connective power of media. I think it must have been that, because soon after that I was writing papers about television in undergrad. I never made the direct connection, but it might just be Will & Grace. Hey, let me ask you something. I know this guy, I think he might be a gay, but I don't know for sure. A gay? What makes you think he might be a gay, uh, officer? Well, he wears shorts. He's always working out. He's got really defined biceps, tight abs, rock-hard thighs. How's the ass? Good, nice, and high. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say someone's gay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary Kearney. Um, I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and I got into media studies via Karen Kaplan, who now teaches at UC Davis. Um, she was at Georgetown when I was pursuing my master's degree and turned me on to film studies at the same time she turned me on to travel literature. I, did, I had absolutely no idea that people studied film the way that people critically analyze literature. And after a lot of haggling with the Georgetown faculty, I was able to write my master's thesis on Madonna and Madonna's music videos. that brought me into media studies, shockingly. I studied television and industry, but it was Spider-Man 2. I loved the heck out of Spider-Man 2. I just thought that movie was so well done, had so many payoffs, and it got me excited, and I wanted to study film. Kiss me. Kiss you. I need to know something. Just one kiss. My name is Sharon Ross, and I'm Associate Chair of the Television Department at Columbia College Chicago, and I got my PhD at the University of Texas in Austin in radio, TV, film. And the moment that made me decide I wanted to be a media studies scholar was actually when I had to VHS record Xeno Warrior Princess episodes for a friend of mine who did not have access to a VCR machine for her master's thesis, and I became addicted and then became addicted to Buffy and decided that the two of them would make for a good dissertation. <laughs> Forged in the heat of battle. 
I'm Chris Robay. I'm an associate professor at Florida Atlantic University. And uh, the first film I think that uh, made me want to study cinema was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because I got to stay up especially late on Saturday nights with my uncle to watch it, right? Because it would go for almost four hours with commercials because this was regular TV we'd watch. And I became slowly addicted to the spaghetti western there uh, as a Pavlovian dog almost that would allow me to stay awake. And then I realized these are really great. Um, So yes, Sergio Leone's to blame for uh, my descent into cinema studies. You just heard from, in order, Mary Beth Haralovich, Ron Becker, A.J. Christian, Mary Kearney, Karen Petruska, without Cora this time, no dogs allowed at the Drake Hotel, Sharon Ross, and Chris Robay. Chris, do you have a Vox Golari contribution of your own? What was your early influence, early media moment? Mine is a film called The Night of the Hunter, 1955 film starring Robert Mitchum. Oh, that's good. And yeah. well, I had, the, when I was growing up, I used to stay up late and watch movies while my parents were in bed. And, uh, you know, I would record these on the good old-fashioned VCR and, and watch these things. And so I just vividly remember that one unspooling it, you know, midnight, complete, you know, house is completely dark and quiet. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. It was just like nothing I'd ever seen. And I thought, I need to know more about this. I'm not equipped with the skills to understand what is going on in this film. I need to know more to understand this. And that's really the first spark of, of the idea that there, there should be at least a way to study this stuff more seriously. And so Night of the Hunter was my inspiration. Oh, that's good. I like that. And Michael, do you have one? You know, the one that comes to mind is thinking back to when I was a junior in high school, I had a really fantastic high school English teacher, Karen Kolbaum. And in one semester, we watched Seven Samurai, Citizen Kane, All the President's Men. Um, I can't think of what else. But, you know, it it was watching The Seven Samurai when I was, you know, 16. And Mm -hmm. I had this really fantastic teacher who just opened it up. And we we had a really, really fantastic week talking about just that film. That's great. Um, we'll have to ha- ask Bill what his favorite is, since he won't talk for us. I know us we're going to have to read microphone. We're going to have to uh, <laughs> perform it for him. Right. Well, uh, we also we do want to thank him for putting that segment together. We also need to thank him for coming up with a fantastic name for this feature, which will be ongoing. So Vox Scolari. Um, and uh, we also want to thank anyone who everyone who spoke to us and uh, gave us. Um, bites for that segment, including those whose offerings we didn't have space to include. Uh, you may hear yours later on down the line, though, as we'll likely revisit that topic again. But if you have any good ideas for future Vox Scolari segments, any questions you'd like us to ask academics and then collect them into a nifty montage, send us an email at info at media.org and also check out our website for links to more info on everything in this episode at media.org. All right, I think that brings our episode to a close, so thanks for listening to us. And we hope your May is a little bit more calmer than your April likely was. And so hopefully we'll be back on time next month. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame. And with the indispensable producing help of Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson. And we'd like to thank this episode's segment participants, David Scott Differiant, Pam Wojcik, Teresa Geller, Kevin Heffernan, Amanda Ann Klein, and all of the students who spoke to me for the SEMSU segment, Brian Buckley, Claire Fleckenstein, Maggie Steinhauer, Amanda Presmit, Chris Mullen, Matt Rizzoni, and Spencer Cubation, plus those whose quotes I uh, wasn't able to include. Happy grading. And thanks for listening. 